You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. And in this episode, we hear from some Getting Smart team parents who are preparing their students for back to school. We're going to hear about the difficulties and celebrations that come from getting ready for that first day, whether it's making decisions about where to go to school or having deep conversations with your kids that support them in feeling really ready for that first day. Parents across the country are preparing for what the new school year will look like. Schools are really the first place that our kids learn to respect and appreciate diversity. They're the first place our kids learn how to feel part of a community. And it's the first place that they develop this strong sense of responsibility for their actions outside the home. So it's really understandable that as parents, we kind of stress over how and when to be involved. And as our team celebrates the one-year anniversary of our Smart Parents Project, we're reflecting on the lessons learned through that process and wanted to use this podcast to share some of our different perspectives and viewpoints about how to best prepare kids for school and how to advocate for powerful learning. The parents in this podcast all talk about ways they can best prepare their students as they head into the school year successfully and also ways they can cultivate powerful learning at home and at school. And since we're talking about that one year anniversary, we do have a gift for all of our listeners, an anniversary gift. If you go to gettingsmart.com slash smart parents, you can get your free copy of our original ebook today. And on this episode, we'll hear from Carrie Schneider, Bonnie Lathram, who are two of the authors of the book, along with Adam Kulas, a principal and a parent. Here's Carrie talking about school decisions with her two daughters, Josie and Bea. Yeah, it's really interesting because Josie actually started off in the Montessori lab school where her little sister now goes. And she was there from the time she was three through second grade or the equivalent of second grade um, in the Montessori. So at the time when we were making that decision, it was our first child. We were new parents. Um, I will honestly say that I think what we were trying to replicate was the environment we created for our kids at home. So we were looking for um, school environments that felt closest to the things we valued as parents. So I think that even for us, it was more about how the school felt and if it really resonated with us on that level than it was really specific things around the academic program that they had. And it isn't as if that didn't matter, but when we were um, looking for a place for our three-year-old, we weren't as concerned about rigor (laughs) as we were the fit for her based on the kind of uh, kid she was growing into. So she moved after second grade into this other um, really different environment where she had gone from Uh, really being, you know, quite literally in a school basement at a university with a really small community and people that we had known since she was three to a large urban elementary school that was really traditional grades K um, through six and more traditional style classrooms, that kind of thing. And it was funny because I think whether we noticed it or not, we started making those kinds of decisions at that point for her um, schooling based less on things um, at school looking like they would at home to thinking through what gaps school could fill that we weren't already serving in her life. So when she was younger, we really wanted her learning environment to feel like home felt. And now I think more what things will the school offer her that I can't offer in our home. So it's really been a huge shift um, to filling gaps in what I can do as a parent 
uh, versus where I was in the beginning, which is really about the, the environments really feeling more similar. When you were making that shift from the Montessori to the STEM magnet, did you have conversation with Josie about that? Like what was the, and what, if so, what did that conversation look like? How involved in that process was she? She was really involved. And I think the whole decision to even change schools for her grew out of some of the things she was sharing about her experiences at school. So it was um, really a family conversation. And we talked a lot about all of the different pros and cons and things that would be different that she might not be thinking about and how to even um, evaluate um, for her what it meant to say, oh, you're going to have all new friends. But here's what um, we'll also do together as a family to make sure you still see your other friends, you know. So we talked through all of that a ton. Um, The real challenge for us was we really did, we didn't have a problem with her previous school. We just all sort of came to the agreement that it wasn't what was best for her anymore. So we wanted to be really, really careful not to say anything to her about leaving the previous school that made her feel like, her school wasn't as good. Her previous school wasn't as good or it wasn't a valuable learning experience because it had given her a really strong foundation that then she was able to take with her into the new learning environment. So we really did talk a lot. And it's, it's funny because we, um, we ask her a lot of questions and, and we just sort of have a family value around having lots of those deep conversations and not being afraid of him, of them. But the conversations that she wanted to have were really different from the things we thought she would be worried about. Like I thought she would be worried about friends and it actually wasn't a huge issue for her because she thought, well, I'll still see them all. What's the big deal. But she was really worried about things like um, how she was going to get lunch <laughs> or um, what the classroom physically looked like. I, she wanted me to draw her a sketch of what the classroom is going to look like. So it, it's so important to have those conversations with the kids because their concerns and fears, you can't assume that you even know what those things are going to be. Next, we talk to dad and principal Adam Kulas. Adam has some great ideas for ways to use the living room for learning, one involving a super cool art project that he does with his kids every single day. Let's listen to Adam. It's fun because I'm in education and my wife isn't, and so we get to um, really grapple with it on on numerous levels, and then I get to wear both hats. And so having worked in quite a few um, non-traditional, pretty exciting and innovative schools, uh, I think I approach my my own son's uh, schools in the same way in looking at um, some of the different things that are associated with what they're working on as a school community. Um, I think one of the biggest pieces logistically for me um, is looking at like class size and physical space, but but bigger is is how are they um, how are they kind of charged to um, be transparent in, in, in what factors or values that they're delivering, that whole child piece uh, beyond academics. So I can look at test scores and I can do those different things. Um, but really, it comes down to getting a feel for, for what that community looks like. Um, in terms of, like, recommendations or things that we do, I think uh, another another intentional piece that we look at is is really being um, proactive in becoming a partner with, with our kids' teachers that very first week of school and, and not waiting for them to communicate with us, but but sending an email of, of support and saying, you know, we're interested in being a partner and, and how can we help 
not only our child grow, but how can we be part of that classroom culture? We embrace technology quite a bit at home, but it's but it's finding that that critical balance of what they're what they're accessing. So so from an information side, it's exciting. Um, we utilize uh, things that are exciting to them in terms of like even YouTube videos are, are pretty popular at our house, um, and then really press against it with a. Like we're kind of the, the the tinker house. We tinker with things, and and we'll intentionally have them break things. We'll have them take things apart um, to go and, and kind of figure out how things work to sort of try to accelerate fostering of of basically learning how to learn. Um, another, I'm a strong advocate of any any team environment, so whether it's sports or or some of the other local organizations, um, getting them in those social situations. And then we have kind of my favorite is that uh, both of my boys, both the kindergartner and the fifth grader, doodle for 30 minutes a day. Uh, and they can doodle on whatever they like, but they have to be able to basically articulate what they doodled at the end of it. And so that's a, that's a practice that we've seen sort of um, benefit them in all kinds of different learning environments because... Um, it definitely goes goes beyond the classroom, and it's relatively uh, inexpensive and pretty effective in terms of helping them express themselves. I think lots of things give me hope. I think the uh, it's it's once again that two hat piece. So I get to see some pretty amazing amazing educators every day. Um, technology is 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 a beautiful thing in terms of accelerating access, and then um, also providing an opportunity for for our kids to to step into to that teaching role at times. And so I think that gives me hope. I think um, just the aspiring ed leaders out there right now, um, thinking outside of the box and looking at classrooms as as, um, as much bigger than, than four walls and a door. Um, and then in terms of the, the communication piece, like, you know, it's the age-old adage of it, it takes a village. It, it really does. And so I think the... I think it goes back to even my first response about being proactive and being a partner and not and not waiting for um waiting for this invitation to be a part of a school community i think I think by by stepping up and bringing um you know a solution mindset or or seeing things through the lens of your child and being able to have have you know uh, use multiple vehicles to have that conversation with with school staff, but I think bringing those solutions or, or just asking those clarifying questions can be not only powerful for for the one kid, but I think growing that community, and I think it also helps, um, you know, on that other side of the table, to, as a teacher and as an educator, it helps us, you know, refine our craft and, and continue to to balance that art-science piece of, of delivering um, just powerful instruction and, and helping kids kids grow. Now that we've heard from Carrie and Adam, both experienced educators who are also parents of school-aged children, Bonnie and I sat down at the Getting Smart office. Bonnie Lathram is one of the authors of the Smart Parents book, and we both have children that are super close in age. So we chatted about our own kids and their learning. First off, I asked Bonnie what she and her husband are working on to support learning for their two young children. Well, we're working a lot on um, reading out loud. So we're reading um, a series of books um, to our four and a half year old, and she's totally digging that at night. So everyday reading. Um, I also got a book from um, an elementary school teacher on teaching reading. I mean, I taught high school 
Um, so there's some um, sort of similar um, processes on teaching high school students about reading in context. So but it's it different than obviously a four and a half year old have never taught anyone to read like that's that young. Um, so, um, you know, we're, we're really working on letters and um, sounding things out. Um, and then, you know, we're also using some online apps. And she has an iPad, my daughter is four and a half. And so we do limited amount of online and have found a few things that we like. Um, some one will be a review soon, getting smart.com, learn with Homer. Um, and then, you know, we're, you know, doing things like going to museums or going on um, you know, outings in the Seattle area, and then just making sure we use that as an opportunity for learning, um, learning what's around us at this really great museum, um, the um, Aviation Museum that's just south of Seattle. It's the Museum of Flight is amazing, and um, if you go on Saturday mornings, they sometimes offer like family discounts, and um, there's always an art project. So, yeah, it's super, super cool. So just, you know, encouraging that. And, and really what you said about asking lots of questions resonates, too. Because any chance that they have to tell stories and verbalize and sort of daydream is um, is really great. So you're in the bathtub and they're like, wow, what would happen if we just kept the water going? I'm like, what do you think would happen? You yes. know, and then just like almost fostering not responding necessarily, like keeping on with the five uh, wh words like why what who where when and letting them go off into like a fantasy um it forces them to sort of daydream and also use a lot of the new vocabulary so like weird you know cool things are happening in the brain um and that's something that, that too the older kids if they've been drilled out of that curiosity it's almost like really hard for them at like 14 15 16 to be that imaginative and obviously if we think about what we need to solve the world's biggest problems is creativity so yeah. any ways that we can foster and creative creativity like monday music night where you put all the electronics and everyone gets out like one musical instrument even if it's yeah. just like the toy drums right like yeah. the and then the recycling box is huge at our house oh yeah all. and like the free stuff too yeah. like, you know just like anything you can make a drum out of anything anything yeah what and I then we do have like the really know. yeah the really like cheap piano thing yeah you know that i think somebody gave us or whatever so it doesn't have to be yeah stuff that's expensive either which is nice and then often that stuff's not the stuff that they want to play with anyway totally well and that so when you were bringing up to like solving the world's biggest problems, I think we're at this interesting place in time where we we are preparing our kids for whether they're kids in our classroom or kids at our house for really having to be good problem solvers and to have to persist through problems. So starting now, I mean, that is something that I want to be more focused on is when something's difficult, sometimes it's more efficient for me as a mom to jump in and be like, okay, let me just help you get dressed or let me just help do that. But instead, kind of taking a, a deep breath and just sitting back and letting him persist through challenging problems and make mistakes and fail, but still have that. I mean, that that part's so important. And those are the life skills that we learn at home that do transfer into the classroom so easily. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really, that's an important thing is sort of how do we teach them to try, fail, try, fail. It's almost design thinking. You know, as a learning design firm, we try and focus on this idea of, you know, let's brainstorm, let's collaborate, let's do all these different things and teaching our kids that too. You know, if you want the apple that's on the table and you're not tall enough to get there, what do you think you could do? You know, teaching them from early on, let's try things, let's learn from what we're trying and and talking through that. I think one of, one of the things that we did this summer that was awesome and i would encourage anybody 
to put something like this together was the creation of a mud kitchen. So having this outdoor play space and I, I kind of went all out and like finding any extra wood that we had in the garage or anything and just tried to put together kind of this cute mud kitchen. But I think it could be done really basic too by just having a spoon and a bowl. Um, and then they make mud pies. So we've got measuring cups out there. We've got teaspoons. We've got um, sifts. We've got um, all these things that they can kind of do with dirt and water. Um, and they get super, super messy. They try out different things. Freeman's been like creating menus. So that's been really fun. I love that. And then I would say all things chalk. Um, I love doing you know, number lines with chalk and walking the number lines and starting to have kind of some of that letter recognition or um, number recognition, you know, how many steps does it take me to get here? How many steps does it take me to get there? Um, so especially just because we're coming off of summer, I feel like that's really important. And then the other thing that I love to do is just say, okay, find five things, you know, and you run around the house and it's the five things project or whatever you want it to be. Um, and they pick five things. The one and a half year old is not as good at this game, but he'll at least kind of try and play along. He just always ends up with five baseballs. Um, but pick five things. And then once we bring them all to the table, we can like figure out what we could create with them. So kind of that mini, mini maker piece of could we solve a problem? Could we do different things? So um, just kind of using whatever you have in the house. And then, of course, the recycle bin. I really don't know why I ever purchased toys because we could take everything from the recycle bin and pull it together to create anything. What about you? I know I've heard you talk about fun things. What are your, what are your favorite free activities? My four and a half year old walks and wants to walk with me, but she gets like um, a little antsy on the walks. So we come up with fun scavenger hunts, uh, count the number of lavender plants we see, uh, count the number of birds in our neighborhood, count the number of dogs that we're going to see on our walk, count the number of red flowers we're going to see while we're walking. That's enough to keep her entertained for like 15, 20 minutes and allows for me, maybe we can get to a destination like a coffee shop or grocery store and then do something similar on the way back um, while my son is in the stroller. Another fun one we just did and all this required was looking for some rocks. We did some paint painting of rocks and then hit them around our backyard. It's almost like the uh, Easter egg hunt, but you know, and we even wrote some fun words on them and then just hit them all through our backyard and then the kids go and collect them and they think it's like hide and seek and super fun and and free. So, yeah. um, you know, and then I remember one of my favorite things from the Smart Parents Project a year ago is when um, when someone wrote a blog piece about encouraging a love of nature and they talked about um, the sit spot and just having your child go and sit in any spot in nature or even from inside just looking out the window and do an observation like five minutes of like what do they hear what do they smell what do they see what does it touch and then starting to identify and that can awaken all kinds of great questions like why do we have bees and it's like uh, the scientific method from the get-go absolutely like Like all yeah and using our power of our senses which is really what makes us human um is our ability to use our senses in those ways so um We've done that a few times, too. It's interesting because you and I both have still the teacher mindset, even though we're no longer teachers, but we still kind of do that, so kind of can't help it. I'm trying to turn turn a lot of, like, fun interactions into, like, inquiring minds want to know. I also think it's interesting because you and I both did more of, like, middle school, high school teaching, and that's a little bit different than three-year-olds, but it's also very similar. Well, okay, let's be honest, though. I'm so much better with middle school and high school kids. Oh, agree. I can't (laughs) wait until they're 12. 
Can't wait. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be really easy then. Yeah. I'm I'm sure. Said no parent Said of, no an ad, parent of ever. a teenager. Right. Yeah. We're interested in hearing from you about all things school, back to school, powerful learning at home as well. So head to hashtag smart parents to share in the conversation. We welcome guest blogs on school decision making and preparing for back to school from the parent perspective. You can send any of those guest posts to editor at gettingsmart.com. And again, use the hashtag hashtag smart parents to join the conversation. This was just one small view into a couple stories and perspectives from the Getting Smart team. But we know that there are additional key issues that parents are thinking about during this back to school time and we want to hear about what they are so if there's anything that we missed or anything that you want to add please let us know um, via social media you can find us at getting underscore smart and of course by using hashtag smart parents and for more on our smart parents project and to obtain a free copy of the ebook smart parents parenting for powerful learning go to gettingsmart.com backslash smart parents and you can receive a free ebook by checking out that page to celebrate the one-year anniversary. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Megan. And this is Bonnie. Signing off.